Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. Has anyone been in that kind of situation? You kind of walk into a place or you actually observe someone walking to there and that whole Sesame Street thing goes through your head like one of these things is not like the other one. I've actually had that kind of situation happen to me many, many times. And that leads us into what we are going to be talking about today. The title of today's message is called They. Everyone say they. 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 You know, they. Them. Those. You know, the ones that are a little bit different to us or a little bit different to me. We're talking about them. We're talking about, you know, how they go about doing life or what they think. And um, that's what today's message is about. It's about they, people who are a little bit different to you and a little bit different to me. Now, I'm um, 43 turning 44, and um, obviously uh, I am a follower of Jesus. I am what you would call a Christian. And um, as I reflect back on my life, I think I have a distinct advantage as a Christian um, over a lot of other people. And if I was to ask you what, what do you think that advantage is, I reckon you'd probably rattle off and you'd bang off the, the normal stuff. you kind of say, oh, yeah, Dave, you probably read your Bible, you, you probably pray, or some of you guys would go like, duh, Dave, like, you're, you're actually a pastor. Of course you've got an advantage. And I do all those kind of things, but there is an advantage that I seem to have always had, and um, it's an advantage which I haven't actually appreciated for most of my life. In fact, I still don't appreciate it today. And that advantage is simply this. I'm actually a little bit different. Has, has anyone honest enough to say, yeah, Dave, you are a little bit odd. You're a little bit different. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that, that's actually been quite hard for me to come to terms with. But the advantage I actually have as being a follower of Jesus and being a Christian is that throughout my entire life, um, I haven't really fit in to things or places. Kind of a misfit um, everywhere I seem to have gone. Like There are many times, even as a pastor of New Spring, the person supposed to be leading the place, I would think to myself and say, Dave, I'm not even sure, like, I don't often talk to myself in third person, by the way, but maybe that's an odd thing. So there are times where I'm kind of thinking, I don't even know if I really fit here either. Kind of a misfit. I am a first-generation Australian. I am an Anglo-Indian. My parents migrated from India at a time when curry was not that popular. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't believe it now because all everyone wants to eat a curry now. Everyone wants to come to the riders now. Everyone wants to have a curry night now. Back in the day, no, 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 no. I grew up in Armadale. I grew up in Armadale to kids of a migrant family going to like public schools. And um, man, I stuck out. Um, really, really stuck out. Um, I was just saying like with, um, with, with Graham, we were doing... Um, band and all that. Do you remember when like Nirvana was really like we were really into that? The Unplugged album came out. That was a, that was that actually was a really great album. Like we were like fully into that and all that. But 
on the other side, I, I, I actually grew up with, like, Tyler's cousin, like, mum and all that. So, like, and their influence on me was R&B, like Janet Jackson and hip-hop and all that kind of stuff. So, like, secretly, I loved R&B and, like, Boys to Men and all that. But then when I went to these other places, you know what? It was Pearl Jam. It was, like, Nirvana. It was, like... Didn't quite fit in, quite eclectic, and that's kind of made me who I am right now, where I can actually appreciate a whole lot of different things. But even as a pastor, like now, and I've been doing this for a while, I wouldn't say I'm green anymore. I mean, like, I've been a senior pastor 11 years now, and um, been working in churches um, for, you know, 22, 23 years. Even as a pastor, I go into many conversations with other church leaders and other pastors, and I've got to be honest, I'm sitting there, and it would be hard for you to believe, but I'm actually quite silent because I'm I'm quite hesitant to head into their conversations because there are things that are important to them which aren't actually important to me when it comes to being a senior pastor. Uh, I'm not talking about like things and strategies to get more people in and all this kind of stuff. That, that, that's actually not my ultimate concern. So I find that there are times when I, I feel like I'm running a different race to other people and it's kind of different. So I'm a little bit odd. I'm a bit of a misfit. Any other misfits in the building? Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Maybe we should rename the church Misfits. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, we'll have t-shirts, we don't belong here. (laughs) We feel out of place. I actually um, have a different race which I'm trying to run, and it's actually a different race which I would love New Spring to run as well. It's not a race of actually having, like, 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 don't don't, um, um, hear me wrong. We actually um, do have the blessing of actually being a a large church in the scheme of Perth. And that's a blessing. But that, that's not our aspiration. Our aspiration, my aspiration, is to run faithfully. I want faithfulness to actually be um, that. Faithfulness means that we are continually learning and we're continually unlearning. I think faithfulness, when it comes to Christianity, means like a real honesty of saying there are so many times and so many things where I actually do not know. And that's okay. Um, we are continually learning and unlearning and rethinking and just trying to be faithful as followers of Jesus Christ. And ironically, that kind of puts me on a different pathway compared to a lot of people. If you've been on the journey with um, us as a church, you will know by now, because pretty much bang on about it every week, Jesus had one solitary message. Can you imagine? Ministry for like, we think it's about three years. And he just preaches about the one, one, one topic all the time. Can you imagine if you had a senior pastor just the same thing every, every week? This is his message found in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And as he goes about doing this and announcing this in first century Palestine, this announcement seems to get people's attention. In fact, in the Gospel of John, there's this account right at the beginning, in the first chapter, we have John the Baptist and his disciples, and he points to Jesus. And as soon as he points to Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist leave John the Baptist and go follow Jesus. Could you imagine that? Like, I thought you were with me. No, you're going over there. So they start following Jesus. Jesus looks around and says to them, well, what do you guys want? They reply, Rabbi, where are you staying? Where are you going? 
And Jesus just says, come and see. Could you imagine that? Jesus going around and he is announcing this incredible thing about the kingdom of God. In the first century, a great announcement, an amazing announcement was called a gospel, funnily enough. That's actually what gospel means. So Jesus is going around and he's like announcing this incredible kingdom, which is at hand. And then he offers his invitation and he says, you want to come and see? I mean, what would you do? Seriously. I don't care, I'm going. So people go and they follow and they're absolutely enthralled. They're absolutely enthralled. It's amazing. And the reason why they're enthralled is because as they follow Jesus, they are given a glimpse of the kingdom. And what they see is that people who are on the fringe, they're all of a sudden, they're really included. There's a lot of worth, there's a lot of dignity given to people. People are liberated, whether that be by sickness or demonic oppression or whatever. There's actually liberation that happens. You, you actually see someone's life and they are free. It's like, wow, that is incredible. People are welcomed. The most unlikely people are welcomed to such an extent that Jesus gets this really unflattering reputation. A reputation that most Christians don't have, by the way. The reputation is this, that he is a friend to sinners. Could you imagine having that reputation? It's like, Dave, man, what are you doing hanging out with those people? Man, I've just been like Jesus. Jesus is literally hanging out with the underground of Israel, and we have a lot of issues in the church today, don't we? Because I don't think we're as welcoming as what Jesus was with the other. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But could you imagine actually being in that kind of world, in that kind of situation? Jesus is walking around and, and people are actually desperate. People are seeking. People are willing to hear. And the reason why they're desperate, the reason why they're seeking is because they acknowledge and they're really honest with themselves. And they would say, you know what? I'm really hurting here. I'm really broken here. I feel like I'm abandoned here. I feel really alone and lost. And in that kind of context, this announcement gets a lot of traction. Jesus appears and makes this announcement. He starts gospeling. I'm just trying to, like, when I say things like that, I'm trying to take these Christian terms and, and things and rip it apart for us, okay? So we can understand what it actually means. When I was on long service leave, I went to this church and it was like really eye-opening to me. And there's a person over there teaching, preaching, and, and they say this, you know what I mean? And everyone's going like this. I'm going, and I'm like sitting there saying, they have no idea what you mean. Because you have no idea what you mean. We need to actually take these Christian terms and rip them apart. Like, what does this actually mean? It's a great announcement. It's an amazing announcement. That's what gospel means. So he does that. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you kind of think, the kingdom of God's at hand? I thought the kingdom of God, God was far away. No, no, no. Listen to the words of Jesus. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's within reach. Could you imagine if we believed that announcement today? The kingdom of God is at hand. No, I need to die before. No, wait. It's at hand. It's at hand. That's the great announcement. And if it was at hand 2,000 years ago, it's still at hand today. That's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm intrigued about. The invitation is actually still in play. It really is. 
Though we go into this world, the same kind of world that would be honest. I reckon the world's really honest right now. I mean, we come out of COVID and we are so honest with ourselves right now. We would say, yeah, I am hurting right now. I am broken right now. I'm not doing so well with my mental health right now. I'm really struggling right now. I feel lost right now. I need to rebrand. I need to reinvent. I need to do all these things. I need to get some life hacks right now because I'm not surviving right now. We're in this very same context. But they're not going to hear the literal voice of Jesus actually opening up this invitation. Guess whose voice they're going to hear? Yours. And mine. And what we should be saying is, come and see. Come check it out. Sometimes I think we do say that, and then they come and see, and what they see is like, what are you talking about? This is no different to what I've got out there. Because we haven't taken upon a different posture in life. So that's what this series is actually about. I am intentionally trying to rattle you to the core. How am I doing? It's been a while since I've actually spoken to you guys, so let's see how much it's building up. We just, let's do a bit of a recap. Um, when I came back February, we started this series called Image, and um, first thing that we kind of put out there was the blurb, the blurb of the Bible. The Bible is this story of God, and the blurb simply says this. Um, it's just a goal slide. So if you were to go to someone, hand them a, a book which is called the Bible, and they said, what is this about? Most people have no idea, but this is actually what the Bible is actually about this is a story about how God is establishing his rule or his reign over creation through humanity for his glory that's what it is through humanity which means that there are some like cool little things that we've kind of heard along the road which actually don't line up with scripture things like you know let go and let God and like God saying no the way this actually works is that my, 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 my reigning and my ruling is actually going to happen through you, not without you. There's this great agency which is given to humans, that God is actually doing it. And when we do that, he gets the glory. How is God glorified? Well, a lot of it has to do with how you partner with God. So that's what the Bible is about. It's a great story, isn't it? Imagine God actually wanting to work with us. Isn't that cool? What opportunities? You know, I'm just letting Jesus take the wheel. Have you heard that? Yeah, Holy Spirit saying, nah, you get back on the wheel. Your job is to take this world somewhere. You know? Anyway. Then we went on to this kind of model to help us understand the story. We called it Goal, Mess and Plan. And if you see underneath, we've got these real great theological words or this theological framework that we've used, in the, well, we still use, creation for redemption. And all I'm saying is, okay, let's put some contemporary language to actually understand what the story of God is about. And so um, it's not my words. I'm just ripping off people who are a lot more smarter than me. But the idea of goal, that there actually is a goal. And Genesis 1, Genesis 2, it's funny that the Bible's actually bookended with a goal. What is God, what are you trying to do here? Funny that, it's bookended. It's a book that's bookended. It's a story that's bookended. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Revelation 21, 22. But then there's also a mess, right? We all know the world's a bit messy. But everyone thinks the mess is like the Garden of Eden, the fall of man. You know? Actually, the Bible says the mess is a lot more complicated. There's stuff that happens in earth. There's stuff that happens in the heavens. There's all sorts of stuff that happens, which lets us know the world's complicated. So if you see someone and they're actually doing stuff that's actually 
harming their life, we can actually have a lot more compassion, don't you reckon? If we understand the world's a lot more complex than what I think, and, and I see someone and they're, like, they're about to like walk off a cliff and they are just happy about it, um, I can have a lot more compassion when it comes to people in those situations. I would hope that I can have a lot more compassion to myself when I stuff up, when I sin, when I do things which are dehumanising, when I hurt people. I would hope that I can actually have some forgiveness towards myself. It's funny, sometimes it's easier to forgive someone else than it is to forgive yourself, isn't it? But we don't understand that the world's a lot more complex than what we think. And then there's the plan. And the plan is, guess what? The plan is actually the rest of the Bible. This is the plan. So someone um, like me, I've given my life to Jesus, I will say I'm saved. What are you saved from? I'm saved from the mess. What have I saved to? I'm saved to the goal. What am I now part of? Now that I'm saved, I'm part of the plan. That's how that model is supposed to work. Is that a good recap for people who've been around? Okay. So it lets us know that Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 is actually packed with a lot of meaning. Packed with a lot of meaning. That there's already a plan in place. Things are not static. They're dynamic. God has visions and dreams about how this is going to happen. How he wants to actually go about seeing this world full of his goodness and full of his flourishment. And the plan and the goal that he initiates is that he is establishing his rule over creation through us for his glory. He takes great delight in actually seeing us as humans do some great things that help other people, right? So in this epic poetry, that's another thing I've been using to rattle you, and um, that's okay. I'm wanting people to, I'm wanting you to rethink some things. So in this epic poetry, the genre of this is actually epic poetry. So in this epic poetry or this Genesis creation narrative, there's this moment that resonates with everyone. It resonates. It's actually found in Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27. If you have your Bibles, how about you open up to that? If you don't, it'll actually be on the screen. But from verse 26, it's a very familiar passage, but it reads like this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and the livestock, and over the wild animals, and over the creatures that are moving along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So up until this point, we've kind of been looking through this this poem and we've actually seen that, okay, God is actually telling us a lot of things. He's speaking to people thousands of years ago in a period of time that we call the ancient Near East. That is a period of time where there's a group of people who have similar knowledge base. They share similar values. Um, They're just people who are separated from us by like 3,000 plus years. And we kind of discovered that people in this area, that they um, pick up, they would have picked up on some of the details um, that are in this amazing poem. They would have known, because they lived in that kind of world, which is different to our world, that in their world, a temple is built in seven days. Does that word seven resonate with anyone? That's a significant thing. So they would have known that when this um, poem is actually being read out to them, that when when the, the idea of seven days is like, oh my goodness, Yahweh, this God, oh, he's creating a temple. They would have known that. It was part of their common knowledge. 
On the seventh day, they would have known because this was common practice. On the seventh day, after a temple is built, the deity or whoever deity they're serving, the idea is that their deity would come into the temple and that deity would rest. Is that a familiar word in the Genesis account? Yeah, and the word rest simply means that their God actually comes and takes like literally this space on earth. And from there, there is this commanding and this ruling and this reigning that happens. So they understood that. They took it for granted. They understood that temples are built when, this, when a deity has a cosmic victory. And what do we read in the, in the Genesis account? That there is chaos, there is disorder, and then God comes and he transforms chaos and disorder to a place that is flourishing, that has functional order so that humanity can flourish. Order, um, disorder and chaos is turned into a place where flourishment happens. My goodness, that's the cosmic battle. It happens. They knew that. So Yahweh comes and subdues all this effortlessly without violence, and he actually creates humans, unlike other creation um, narratives that actually say that a God creates humans to be their slaves. Actually, Yahweh has other things in mind. It's an incredible thing. Another shared piece of information that the ancient Near East had was that the very last thing that you place inside of a temple is an image. Is an image. So no surprises here. In verse 26, we actually read that... Uh, it says, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. See how this is working? God's speaking to people thousands of years ago. And if we want to understand what God is saying, we need to understand it on their terms and then apply it to our terms. He's talking about um, his goal. So let's make mankind in our image, or a better translation would be this. Let us make humankind as our image. Or another rendering would be this. Let us make humankind to be our image. To be our image. So this idea of image in the ancient Near East and what Genesis is actually trying to relate and actually reveal and actually tell us today is that image is this depiction of a status or a function that every single human has. You don't grow in it incrementally. If you're a person, you got it. It's on you. Have you ever noticed there's something distinctly different about humans? Have you ever noticed that? There's something quite wonderful about humanity, about humans. I was listening to a couple of podcasts this week, and um, it might surprise you, they weren't actually Christian podcasts. I was actually listening to a, um, a physicist, and he was talking about um, quantum um, computers. So in the next 10 years, quantum computers are going to be like a real thing. Um, at the moment, computing is basically done on um, transistors. We've moved to a place where um, in 10 years' time, it'll actually be, um, um, well, it'll, it'll change a lot of things, but, but computing that's done on atoms, imagine that. So fast. They're millions of times faster than um, the computers we have right now. So the aspiration of... Um, of these, these physicists doing this. You might be wondering, why are you doing this? So the aspiration is that the, these computers are going to be able to delve and correct errors in DNA. So there's literally going to be a time where things like cancers are going to be gone. We're going to be able to delve in and going to be able to correct things like that. Diseases are going to be gone. That's amazing, isn't it? I was listening to another podcast. They were talking about memory and what they're doing with memories and, uh, and what they've learned about memories. And the question came like, 
And it was a really good question because I was wondering myself, so this seems like a really strange thing. You're doing all this research on memories. And the question was asked, why are you doing this research on memories? And the answer was just straight away, Alzheimer's. If we can actually give people back their memory, that they can remember their family, that they can remember to go back home, there's something about humans, isn't it? There's something about humans. We just want to take the world somewhere. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, I remember him saying once, you put a monkey in a jungle and the monkey will eat bananas, you put humanity in a jungle and they'll build a city. Isn't that right? There's something about us. We're weird, we're odd, we're unique. But there's something inside of us where we want to build, we want to create, we want to move, we want to take the world somewhere. It's the imago day. It is the status that we are made in the image of God. But then the mess comes in, right? And the question is, with everything that's come in, we've got sin. We've got these mysterious forces that the Bible calls principalities and powers that move and shape and, and, and manipulate and are very mischievous. The question is, well, how are you going to take the world somewhere? That's the question. How are you going to do it? How are you going to take the world somewhere? Theologians call um, verse 26 a cultural mandate where it says, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Here's the mandate, so that they may rule over the fish, over the seas, over the birds, over the sky, over the livestock, over the wild animals, over the creatures, and move along the ground. The question is, how are you going to do that? Because if we are made the image of this God, we're supposed to be imaging and reflecting and in representing this kind of God, that should determine how we rule, how we bring dominion. And that's the actual question. How are we going to go about that? How are we going to go about that? Because what we see in Genesis is that Yahweh comes and he demonstrates his rule, not by abusing power, not by dominating. He actually comes with a dominion of care and protection rather than domination and abuse. The question is how? If we are returned back to that vocation, if we are returned back to the goal, that image is on you. You're going to take the world somewhere. The question is, how are you going to do it? Are you going to do it imaging this God? Or are you going to do it imaging another God? That's the question. Cool question, huh? Far-reaching question. History demonstrates how Christians have actually got that question pretty bad in the past. Historians have rightfully accused Christian tradition for bearing a huge burden and guilt for our present ecological crisis. Um, it's funny, I was reading like, some theological books in, over um, um, long service leave and there was, one of them was about the ecological crisis and the statement was actually made, it's like, this is not an ecological crisis, this is a theological crisis. It's actually about our theology, how we actually go about things. The heart of the ecological crisis is a misuse of power, power as dominion, as domination I should say. Feminist theology, uh, theologians have rightfully identified the connection between the hierarchy of male over females with that of humanity over creation. That's a, that's a really interesting observation. The question is, how are we going to rule? How are we going to do it? 
in your marriage? How are you going to, how are you going to, how are you going to, how are you going to be a wife? How are you going to be a husband? It has far-reaching implications. And that's not to mention the exceptional work of really, really high-esteemed um, theologians from marginalised communities, communities like the African Americans, the Asians, the South Americans, women's, pretty much um, academia, which is actually pouring in from the perspective of the marginalised. Another thing is unchecked consumerism with its modified adage. You know, we used to say, I think, therefore I am. Right now, we would probably say, I consume, therefore I am. Consumerism has just gone nuts. And that stuff has actually ran, runs rampant through the churches as well. So the command of God to humanity to have dominion or rule, the question is what kind of dominion, what kind of rule? Because the rule that God calls for is a rule of respect, of love, of care for his good creation. It's a summons to wise guardianship rather than self-indulgence to provide leadership within the commonwealth of creatures um, rather than a license for exploitation. Daniel Migliori actually paraphrases the mandate and says it like this. Let your faithful ordering of the world image the way that the, our gracious God exercises dominion. So how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we rule and reign in this world? Very first posture as we're moving into this imago day, what it means to be made in the image of God. Finally, we've gone through a lot of stuff, but finally we go in there. The very first posture of this new humanity of which the church is, is a posture of welcome. Welcome. Easier said than done. If there is a they and there is a they, if there is a them and there is a them, our posture should be one of welcome. That's hard for us as Christians. My observation is that Christians fail to welcome the other because we've been conditioned to fear and to make enemies of people with ideologies, beliefs, that are other than ours. Here's an example, just to rally a bit. You would have heard me say that the Genesis creation account is an epic poem, and that would have rattled some people. And I knew it. That's why I said it. It's a story about God loving a group of people and speaking to them in terms that they would understand, with questions that they have. So he starts talking to them about the functional orders of creation, not the material orders, ordering of creation, the functional orders of creation. And at the same time, he's correcting competing creation narratives. The most prominent creation story at that time was the Babylonian one, which was about violence, which was about humans um, being slaves. God is coming and he's saying, that is wrong, this is true. This is who I am. I'm not one of violence. I didn't create the world with violence. But we have a hard time accepting that. Do you want to know why? Because in human history, something entered the scene. We call it Darwinism. Right? Up until that point, our church fathers interpreted this a lot different to where we are right now. Now, follow the rational thinking. As soon as Darwinism hits in, guess what the Christian's thinking? Ooh. Fear. We need to fight that. This is what they think. And then all of a sudden, we started interpreting this very differently. That makes sense. That's what happened. 
Isn't it good to know that we can actually have a faith that's not fighting science? I think that's kind of cool. We even started filling in gaps where the Bible remained silent. And it all came about because of fear. But we don't need to live in fear. But the goal of Genesis has a very different posture that we are supposed to take as this new creation, as Christians, as the family of God. And being poetry, this creation account has the ability to say so many different things and spark our imagination. So through this, we actually see in verse 4, God sees light and says, it's good, right? It's good. Poetry repeats words all the time. It's good. Guess what happens in verse 10? Light and water. God saw it. It was, it was good. Oh, my goodness. He said it again. Verse 18. Sun and moon, it's, it's good. Oh, my goodness. There's repetition happening here. Verse 21. Sea creatures, it's good. Verse 25. Animals, it's good. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day, we know the sixth day, the seventh day, what's happening? God's going to come in and rest. Right? So God says this about his creation. It's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. And on the seventh time, he says it's very good. You read it in English and you can see the poetry in it. Right? So Genesis opens up with this good creation of a loving God who welcomes into existence creatures who are other to him. Other to him. And guess what? This otherness is celebrated. This otherness is welcomed. This otherness is rejoiced over. And if you think about as this creation is happening, if you see any angelic um, beings or anyone over there like, like sitting with God or looking at God and pointing at that and saying, who are they? What would God have said? God would have said, they are blessed and they are good. In fact, altogether, they're very good. This is this challenging a little bit? In fact, when he talks about the fish and the birds, he says, God blessed them and he said, be fruitful. He blesses them. Blesses. But we struggle with the other. I get that. You know, it's not that long ago that it would have actually been looked down upon my marriage. I forget it. I forget. But I'm actually a brown fella. I'm a chocolate brother. And I married a white girl and we have caramel babies. <laughs> it's true. You're welcome. <laughs> it wasn't that long ago Christians would have said, no, nah, you can't do that. Not that long ago, guys. Not that long ago at all. We have terms for our struggle with the other. We call it racism, sexism, ageism, genderism. But Jesus has no problem with the other as the fullest expression of true humanity and a pioneer and example for us to follow. Daniel Migliori says again of Jesus, Jesus is indeed fully human, but he has a new humanity. The intimacy of his relationship with God and his solidarity with sinners and the oppressed are new and offensive. They're still offensive even today. Get this, he is the human being radically free for God's coming reign and therefore radically free for communion and service to the neighbour. Why is it that Jesus can welcome the other? It's because he is radically free. He's radically free. I've got so much more, but I've run out of time. But I think you're getting the gist. One of the um, theologians has actually um, spoken a lot into my life is 
last four to five years is called Timothy Gombus. Last year he um, wrote a commentary on um, Mark. And I just love the way he started his commentary on Mark because in two pages he pretty much sums up everything I've been trying to do for the last five years. Don't you just like, love smart people like that? So I'm just going to read this and then we're going to close. Is this okay so far today? I love what he says here. And another thing is, like, because as I read this out from a world-class theologian, you're going to know Dave's not making this up. <laughs> the four Gospels stand at the head of the New Testament, that stand at the head of the New Testament, are not the beginning of a story, but the continuation of a much longer narrative coming out of the Old Testament. They constitute the climax of the story of, of the God of Israel, as Jesus indicates in the opening of Mark, when he says, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. We must understand, therefore, what the story is about and where Mark or the Gospels are situated in the larger drama. Scripture reveals the account of God creating his world as a hospitable place for humanity, a wonderful and welcoming habitat for humanity's flourishing. All of creation was to be God's temple, his dwelling place, and humanity was the image of the creator God in that temple. God called humanity to rule over creation on God's behalf overseeing the spread of God's order of flourishing throughout the whole world, spreading God's glory worldwide. And humanity was created with, by God with difference and diversity. Adam and Eve were other to one another. And the differences between them stood in for the many differences and distinctions that would develop among tribes, nations, and ethnicities. And all of this otherness was the richness of the created order. So that God's glory was a symphony and not just the sound of a single note. The differences between Adam and Eve were opportunities for conversation, exploration, learning about the other and wondering at the multifaceted richness of the other. This pattern of relating was to be replayed and acted by, out by groups of people over time so that tribes and nations would relate to one another fruitfully as patterns in enjoying and spreading the reign of the one true creator, God. Tragically, humanity rebelled against God, and rather than overseeing the spread of God's order of flourishing, they cast their lot with forces of disorder and chaos. They were banished from the garden of God's presence and began the long, terrible experience of living in a godless world, inhabiting creation in a way that God did not intend. They were alienated from each other and, and from God viewing one another with suspicion fostering conflict and division, and seeking to assert power over them. Adding to the dilemma, cosmic enemies now fostered the oppression and degradation of humanity and creation. As Cain finds out in Genesis 4, the cosmic power of sin had also entered the drama for um, fermenting murderous desires within Cain and fostering division, oppression, and exploitation. And just as rebellion had occurred in the human realm, there was also heavenly figures of spiritual authority who had rebelled against God's kingship in mysterious ways that were per perverting and corrupting the human experience in God's good but now hijacked world. God, of course, was not at all content with this situation. He longed for his world to manifest his gracious reign, so he called Abraham as the agent through whom he would reclaim the nations, all humanity, and bring them back into his blessing. 
Abraham's family grew into a nation while enslaved in Egypt, and God eventually liberated them in a powerful display of his supremacy over the gods of Egypt. Israel was now God's elect people, chosen by God as a kingdom of priests who would be the national agent of God's reclamation of the nations. They were specially chosen to know God and then to help the nations of the world understand how they too might turn from idols to worship the one true God. Israel was called to be a people of justice, taking active steps to cultivate national patterns of life and cultural practices whereby the poor were taken care of, along with the orphan and the widow, and to prevent people from falling into crushing debt or losing their land. They were to enjoy economic practices that spread blessing around and prevented vulnerable people from being exploited. They were not to mistreat any foreigner that lived in the land, those non-Israelites that worshipped other gods, for they had once been foreigners and aliens themselves before God brought them into his land of blessing. In all these ways and more, Israel's national life would be a return to, the living, to living in God's good world according to God's gracious design. Their corporate practices and community dynamics would embody and manifest the kingship of the one true God. In another sad turn in the story, Israel did not become this kind of people who were faithful to God by being obedient to his commission. They exploited the vulnerable, the poor, the orphan, the widow. They mistreated foreigners, did not orient their national life and cultural practices according to God's justice, and did not become people that embodied the reign of the creator God through compassion towards each other. And they cut themselves off from the nations rather than cultivating relationships with them in order to discover together how to enjoy the reign of God. Some among them even longed for God to destroy the nations rather than to bless them. Jonah embodied this sort of bitterness towards the nations. When God commanded him to preach to Nineveh that God's destruction was imminent, Jonah refused to go. He knew that if God detected even a whiff of a hint of repentance, he would relent from his stated purpose and pour out restoring power, and that's precisely what Jonah wanted to avoid. Because Israel rejected the prophets who called them back to faithfulness, they were sent into exile. First, Israel, the northern kingdom, was sent into exile in 722 BC, taken captive to Assyria. Then in 586 BC, Judah, the southern kingdom, was exiled to Babylon. Exile, however, was not to be the end of the story. God promised that he would one day return and bring his people back to himself. In a second Exodus event, he would once again redeem them, liberating them from captivity as he had once freed them from the enslavement in Egypt. They would enjoy the reign of God and the land God had given to them and finally become the just people that would enjoy God's gracious and life-giving reign. And Israel would partner with the nations to march to Jerusalem to worship the God of Israel, who was also the great king over the nations, the God who rules heaven and earth. Israel then is left in this posture of expectation, a time of waiting to see how God would fulfill his promises to save and restore his people. And as the centuries went by, the waiting only intensified. And it's at that moment, Jesus comes onto the scene. But that is the story of God. And that is who we are reclaimed to be once again. We are people of justice. We are the people of God. Francis Schaeffer said this, Our relationship with one another 
is a criteria the world uses to judge whether our message is truthful. Christian community is the final apologetic. What is our posture towards those who are other? Different values, different ideologies, different skin colour, different age, different gender. What if our posture was that of welcome? That we would be just like a Heavenly Father as He shows Himself, as He reveals Himself, as one who celebrates, rejoices, and welcomes in creatures who are other to Himself. That's what the church is supposed to be. And that is why we're running a different race. And it's in that context we are on this journey, New Spring Church, of unlearning relearning and figuring out what it actually means to be a faithful Christian in 2023. But I reckon there's a lot of opportunity. Amen.